We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 336. Our guest today is the queen of positive reinforcement. She is absolutely a pioneer in the use of positive reinforcement with training with horses. Her powerful and humane behavioral training techniques are really an eye-opening experience for equine professionals, competitors, and amateurs alike. She's produced books and videos and has traveled around the world to teach the concepts of bridge conditioning and positive reinforcement for horses. She's worked with so many horses and equestrians, but probably her most notable situation was with John and Beezy Madden, where she helped Beezy's horse to overcome his fear of jumping water. So without further ado, please welcome our guest today, Shauna Karish. Hi, Shauna. Hi, how are you? Doing well. How are you? Good. It's nice to be here and nice chatting with you. Yes, absolutely. I'm so excited to hear a little bit more about positive reinforcement. I think it is super interesting topic. So excited to hear more from you. But first, tell me how you got started in the horse world. Um, I kind of had a, an odd route to the horse world because I, I, as a young child, I was abused as a child. I was sexually abused from the time I was three till I was 16. So that became you know, something, it was a big part of it. And we would go to my granddad's farm. There's pictures of me as a child in diapers sitting on a horse. And so we would go to the farm to see my granddad's horses for the weekends. It was just a hobby farm because he was, he was busy. And so I remember when I was about six years old, I had this really, I kind of dawned on me that when we went to go catch the horses to be with us for the weekend, it was really hard. It was hard to catch them. And it dawned on me as a little kid, they don't want to be caught, you know, but once we caught them, we could do whatever we wanted to them. And, and so that struck me on a very visceral level that I did not understand. I did not know. I did not put that together with what was going on in my life, but I knew it made me really uncomfortable. And I didn't know these words, but I felt like we're imposing ourselves on them, whether they wanted it or not now I look back and I recognize that that was my situation as a child. But what we're driving those horses into is something called learned helplessness, where once they're caught, they were what everybody calls good horses. You could do whatever you wanted. They wouldn't move foot left, right. Little children could hang on their legs. They were very, very shut down, you know? And so they tried to not get caught, but once they're caught, they shut down and they went into this place of learned helplessness. And that's what I was going through with my life. So that that became something that resonated with me. And I didn't understand any of that until I was an adult. So then I go on my way and I love, I love the horses, but, but I also then said, I don't want anyone to catch the horses for me ever again. So I was, I didn't want to add to, to that struggle with the horses. And so then I, you know, grew up and was studying animals and doing field research. And then I got a job with SeaWorld in San Diego while I was going to school and they worked with my school schedule. And then the next summer, a job came up with animal training and I tried out and I got the position and I was there. I stayed there for 10 years. So I loved it. I loved the behavior side of it. They offered me a full-time position at the end of the summer and 
it was something that I just really loved. But I all I knew, because what we do with the marine mammals was only positive reinforcement. I had no clue about anything else. So I, when I was about um, 10, I've, I've probably been there about eight years. And Elizabeth Bush Burke of Anheuser-Busch, who owned SeaWorld at the time, gave some of us trainers tickets to see a show jumping Grand Prix in Del Mar, California, because I was from San Diego is where I grew up. And so the um, we went and saw that. And I, I remember thinking, wait a second, I love this. Now, so this became my start into looking about how horses were trained. Now I'm going to say, I saw mostly stressed, unhappy horses and riders. It seemed like a lot of people that were stressed and a lot of horses that were stressed and it didn't seem great, but there were two horse and rider combinations that looked like a walk in the park. And I thought, that's what I want. That's what I want to create is that kind of relationship. But now knowing positive reinforcement, like I did, I knew I had a different set of tools than whatever was being availed to my, my grandfather's horses way back in the day. And so this is where I started looking into it. And I heard, no, 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 that's not how it's done. Horses don't learn that love that way. They're not smart enough. And then finally, you know, I heard this, you know, I read this thing about a man named Tom Doris, who was like the grandfather of the natural horsemanship movement. So I called him on the phone because all the Grand Prix show jumping horse people that I had access to kept saying no. And he said, yes, I definitely think the food will work. The positive reinforcement will work. I think this is a great thing. Why don't you come here to my ranch and work with me? And we'll do it together. And I was like, I have to work. I'm still a marine mammal trainer. So I didn't take him up on that. But then a little while later, I had dinner with somebody uh, named John Madden, which um, is, you know, not a football guy. This was BZ Madden of, show, mm-hmm. you know, fame. It was her husband. And we went out to dinner with my boyfriend, who was also had been a, a Grand Prix show jumper and ridden with George Morris for five years and all that. And we told John about the Vinton, my ex-husband now at that point, he was my boyfriend said, tell John about the training. So I told him about the training and he just got more and more and more wrapped up in it. And just, you know, it was intriguing to him. And then he went home at the end of the night and we went and got him a clicker because we didn't call it clicker training in the marine mammal world. We never used We didn't use clickers. We didn't call it that. That came from the dog world as we went. And and I got but we did have clickers from some project we'd done with the, the walruses and otters, I think. And so he went and BZ had a horse that came to them who was terrified of the riding stick. You couldn't have one anywhere near it. You couldn't have one. Your neighbor couldn't have one. Could be on the ground, under saddle, nothing. And he in that first day, he said, I not only got this horse to touch the riding stick, I can't get him to stop. And he said, so if I could turn that big of a no into that big of a yes, right. must come here. We must do this. We must work together and, and put this into action. So I went for that first week was kind of just to see how us humans got along. Even though I hadn't done positive reinforcement with a horse yet, I owned a horse by this point. Now I was thinking, I got to figure out how it's being done traditionally. And so I got a horse who I did feed. I can't help myself on that, but it wasn't the systematic thorough approach like we do with the marine mammals and like we subsequently down do with the horses. But um, so that was the first week when I went with John and Beasy, it was the first week I put into action. And it was kind of, I look at it like it was my lab time. This is how do I figure mm-hmm. out how much of this, how much of that, how does it go together? And one of the things that Beasy said that was pretty remarkable, and this was that very first um, week of us being together. Now, BZ Madden is not a real chatty, 
going to say superfluous things. She's very minimal on her, on her words, as it were. So she, I remember us sitting around their, their kitchen table and, and BZ saying every single one of the horses you're working with this week is remarkably better in the arena. Hmm. And this became interesting because you're I was like, but all I did was do three, five minute sessions a day, the clicker in their stall. They did their normal everything else. I just caught them when they're in their stall. And then the next three days, I did three, five minute sessions a day, adding on the target. So now they've seen me for 15 minutes a day, only in their stall. It had nothing to do with the training BZ was doing. It didn't even happen outside of their stall. And, and yet they were all remarkably better in the arena. So this became the beginning of what I kind of refer to now as, as looking at the bottom of the iceberg. So I picture like the training and even what I thought with the marine mammals, you picture this little part, this little triangle at the top. This is the part of the iceberg that's above the water. And this is operant conditioning. This is teaching them to jump, teaching them to hold still for mounting, teaching them to load the trailer, teaching them to have a flying lead chain, whatever those pieces are. This is operant conditioning where we're teaching them you do something in order to get some sort of effect. It's a cause and effect. And it's the training we all think about. It's them learning to operate on their environment and get what they want or avoid what they don't want. But when BZ said that, what I felt like I did is I had a glimpse under the surface at the rest of the iceberg. And I it was so big, I had no idea what I was even looking at yet. So needless to say, I've learned so much since then. And my training and my approach has grown and changed so much since then even though I was really had a strong foundation because of working with the marine mammals at SeaWorld, we really, I have really good practice, really good technique, really good at high criteria, really good at getting them engaged in the game and having it be fun and not all about the food. And, but when I started working with horses, it was really the emotions that kind of started coming forth that I realized it is the classic conditioning and all the stuff that's going on beyond just the operant conditioning. Mm -hmm. Big story. <laughs> Definitely. What What would you say are the main problem points or behaviors that people come to you with? You know, and, and that's a really good question. I think that it has definitely changed a lot. You know, in the beginning, I worked with Olympic show jumpers, Olympic dressage, world champion inventors, and they were all like, we're at the top of our game. We're open to what you have to say. And then the new people would say, oh, there's something to this because it's all science based. I didn't make any of it up. So and, but it was the middle of the road people that I really had the hard time getting the trainers that were not quite to the top of their game, but were, were in there somewhere. And, and it fe I feel like one of the things that people have come to me a lot about is getting their forces to go forward under saddle, that that is being a big challenge for people. And back in the day, they would say, I'll do whatever crazy thing you have, you know, because that was, you know, nearly 30 years ago. And, and I would say, OK, but you have to be a part of the training. And then they would learn how it worked. But but really, it, it has been all over the map, you know, that there's some people are, you know, it, it's really husbandry stuff. But I, I think right now as we're working towards getting it more back out to the show world, because there's this disconnect where they think under saddle stuff isn't, you can't, yeah, it's great for on the ground, but you can't do it under saddle or it's great for, you know, your recreational rider, but it's not for professionals. And all those things are misstatements. You know, those are not true. It's for everything. So I think as we get back out there, it's really trying to address some of the, the sport horse challenges and, and helping people to have a better grasp of how to do it. But it really has been all over the map. But I think a number one has been their biggest struggle that traditional training 
can't really seem to get around when they get to that impasse is the going forward under saddle. Interesting. I feel like if done incorrectly, mm-hmm. positive reinforcement can sometimes cause some negative behavior. Like I feel like people would say like, like a treat monster. Like, yeah. And is that something that is true? What are some things that people <laughs> need to be mindful of when starting positive reinforcement training? Yeah, and that's and that's a great question and kind of the biggest question, really, because there's there's one of the things I know if somebody says positive reinforcement doesn't work, I know that they don't know how to do it. They haven't learned how to apply it correctly. So there's more to it than just thinking, just go feed them. There's some some pieces that we break down. And this is what the marine mammal world was so good at was that uh, pulling it out of the textbooks and putting it into practical application. That people would think that, that, that it's just easy. You're just feeding. And, and it's so, so much more to that. And that's one of the things that the remammal world taught me so well. And really well-intentioned people can get themselves in trouble. But it is, you can do it poorly just like anything else. Pressure and release can be done poorly. So can positive reinforcement be done poorly. And so there is a cautionary tale there because you do need to, one, the, and what it tells me when the horses get so revved up and excited, what it tells me is that they are, that it is so very valuable. You know, that the food is such an important commodity to them that it is too valuable. You know what I mean? So it's, so you need to work with some pieces. And I'd say one of the pieces that I, I find is really, really important is trying to teach our horses to be relaxed as part as a criteria for this training. Now that doesn't mean relaxed, like disengaged, walking away, flat affect. It means like I'm here, I'm ready to jump, but I'm going to do or pee off or whatever it is, but I want to do it with relaxed energy. So having them kind of feel it's easy to put frustration into the training if we're holding this commodity and not letting it be easily accessible. So, so there, there are some slippery slopes there. So building in mm-hmm. relaxation and, and there's a few things really to work out that can be kind of your, your pitfalls for, for the training. And so if we, we make it too, there, there's a number of things, clarity, we need clarity in the equation, which the positive reinforcement can usually bring, we can bring a huge understanding of what's expected, which helps them a lot, but it's also not being too stingy with the reinforcement. So wanting to be sure that we have the, the positive reinforcement is, is really, uh, they understand it. It's easy to get, it's easy to get to those answers. And when you get them going along those lines, it's actually the game that's more important than the actual food. So while I use food all along, the when positive reinforcement is done correctly, what we've really engaged them in is the game or something called contra freeloading. So it's the game of solving the puzzle. So if it feels like your horse is only doing it for the food, we, we've missed a step. We've done something that's created a well, this is an anthropomorphic term, but they can feel like a sense of entitlement. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And it feels like, well, I'm not going to do it unless. But really, there's always they're always doing it because of something. Even in pressure and release, they're doing it because of the aversive that will be applied. Or they're doing it because they're trying to seek something they want. So they're either avoiding something they don't want or right. seek something they don't want at all times. So that's just the nature of, of learning and how it goes. So by building in some relaxation by bringing some clarity and understanding some of these pieces behind it you really have this amazing tool 
that can help you, you know, change the lives of your horse and definitely the relationship with your horse. So it's exciting, but it, it is often misunderstood. It seems like the more people are doing it now, the more you have people hanging a shingle without too much experience, mm-hmm. you know, so they're excited and they love it. And I love that piece, but I think it also doesn't necessarily keep the people that maybe have a, a different horse or a more challenging situation doesn't help them to stay out of, out of those, you know, potholes that they can fall into if right. it's not carefully navigating how to do the positive reinforcement. Right. Let's take a minute and talk a little bit about tack cleaning, because it's not just about having clean tack, right? It's also about the health and well-being of your horse that comes in contact with your tack, and having beautiful, healthy tack that really lasts for a lifetime, because our tack is always quite an investment. So I want to talk to you a little bit about Sterling Essentials, because it's one of my favorite tack cleaning products. It's premium, all-natural essential oil, powered leather cleaner and leather conditioner. And what I really love about it is that there are zero toxins or harsh chemicals, um, counterproductive ingredients, um, so it's just like a really, really great, purely vegetarian product. Um, Beeswax, food grade ingredients, plant-based oils, and premium essential oils. So not only does it smell amazing, but you can really enjoy the feel of really clean leather without all the sticky leftover cleaning product residue, soap scum, white film, glycerin, or the slipperiness or oiliness that's often caused by other cleaners and conditioners. So for more information, visit their website at sterling-essentials.com. That's S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G-essentials.com. And I also have a promo code if you want to give it a try. So use the discount code Bethany, B-E-T-H-A-N-Y, for 30% off. This does not include bundles and terms apply, so you can see their policies on their website for more information. But I think it's a great opportunity to give some of their products a try. So again, that is Sterling Essentials. You've worked with so many horses over the years. Can you tell me about a maybe a particularly challenging horse that you've worked with and kind of walk me through how you helped that horse, you know, overcome that challenge and and how how things were different going forward between the horse and the owner? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's one that's a, a kind of a pretty famous story is about judgment which is a horse that John and BZ had, and he was a Grand Prix show jumper, and he had a huge water jumping issue. Mm. And that one was pretty magnificent because they went and said, he had been ridden by the best. You know, he had great trainers, and but he just had this issue. And so that was a pretty exciting story because it it really did change it till he he loved jumping water. He then loved it when when he he hated it. You know, it was really his nemesis. So that's always a fun story. And that, but it was John and Beezy who really did the bulk of the work with that. They pulled him from shows and worked through that situation until they got him, you know, very successful with jumping the water. So that was fun. But I think kind of a more relevant story for a lot of people is this story of a horse. He was a horse of mine and his name was Murray. And Murray was a horse that was, he was an off the track thoroughbred. I had just lost a horse before I had moved to, I lived in New Mexico for a little while. I, I'm now in Pennsylvania, not there anymore. But when I first moved to that place, um, I had just lost my horse. My He wasn't my older horse and he just died in his sleep. So we don't know what, it was very peaceful. 
you know, we don't know what went on, but so there's this horse, Murray, who was a four-year-old off the track thoroughbred. And this woman had a bunch of horses. So I asked her if I could lease him. And uh, as I started working with him, I realized Murray didn't like anything. I mean, nothing. And there's in, in our little Zoom call, there's that little picture up there of me and Murray. That's Murray. And Aww. he, yes. And that was him leaning over to lean into me. I was standing next to him and it was just so sweet. He, but he came and I realized he doesn't like anything. He didn't like people. He, he was afraid to step over his threshold in a stall. He didn't like being touched. He didn't like being out with other horses. He, he just was very fearful of everything. And he just stood with these big worried eyes. And I remember the gal who had me, had him before me said, it's, um, he looks so cute. He always looks like a little boy. And me kind of thinking, well, not really, you know, because I recognize that <laughs> that was a really sweet. Yeah. It was one born out of fear of everything. So I remember thinking, I have to classically condition the whole world. And the classic conditioning is a piece that I think is really, really important. The operant conditioning is them learning to operate on their environment. So that's us teaching them to do this for this, you know, or to avoid this or whatever it is. That's the, the training we all think about. Classic conditioning is what's going on behind the scenes. And classic conditioning is like Pavlovian, Pavlov's dogs, where it's it's just time and repetition of, of things being, being paired with primary reinforcers till it starts to change neural pathways. It starts to change a visceral response. It starts to change what's happening in the brain. It starts to change their perspective. It starts to change how they, they perceive the world. And so all of that is huge. I mean, it is just giant, but it's also a little bit, it's behind the scenes and people don't even focus on it all that much yet which I think they will more and more because the classic conditioning never stops. We're very aware of it. We teach the clicker. We're click feed, click feed, click feed, or the whistle or whatever, you know, click feed, click feed, click feed. That's classic conditioning until the clicker takes on the value of the food. And so pretty soon they hear the click and they'll drool, they'll nicker, they'll, you know, all the things physically that food produces. Now the, the clicker produces, but it never stops. It's always going on behind the scenes. And I remember thinking about Murray and thinking, I have to use operant conditioning. I need to teach you systematically about stuff until we change your perspective. And pretty soon that all changed. He, he was better. He could be, he couldn't even be turned out with other horses because he would just stand like he was about to be eaten or he would leave like he's about to be once he realized he was safe and he wasn't going to be chased by the other horses, he would then become very aggressive himself because he didn't know how to just be in a good headspace. And with when we started with all the positive reinforcement pretty soon, you know, like you couldn't touch his belly because he was just going to kick and you couldn't touch his sheath or he was going to kick or you couldn't, you know. And pretty soon you'd see if I started to touch his belly, he'd be like, well, I think I'm going to see what happens. Mm -hmm. You know, now I started to realize instead of looking and everything was fear and and I must defend myself from it. He stopped to think maybe it's going to be okay. And, and it just changed and changed and changed till that little horse opened up and was a whole different version of himself. So wow. it will forever be the horse that I, that I saw the most dramatic changes with. He was then out in a track paddock with other horses. Cause now he was good with other horses. So he would go out all night. And one night he was out all night and he, in the morning, the guys came and said, there's something wrong with him. And he had broken his pelvis. So he wow. ended up having to be put down at seven. But we had three fabulous years of changing his world, of him feeling safe, 
knowing love. And, and to be honest, I wouldn't change anything about it. You know, knowing that he got hurt in the track paddock, he was being a horse, you know, and he was being out with other horses and doing what horses do and, and having a very rich, full life. Things happen. And I wouldn't Mm -hmm. change that now. It breaks my heart because he was, it had all opened up and he was ready to, to be everything, but, but he, he, anyway, so he was a huge story, a huge success story. People came and worked with him, you know, when I was back in, in that place and, you know, I do miss him, but he, his legacy will get to live on. So that part I love. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have a horse in my program who came to me with a bit of a fear of jumping, certain mm-hmm. jumps, like like plain jumper jumps, he will do. We usually have to do a process of, you know, bringing them down to a cross rail or a small vertical and slowly bringing them up. If it's more of a predictable scenario, he feels more confident jumping. But uh-huh. anything with like solid boxes or hunter fill, he gets, you know, either spooky, very timid does not want to jump the jump what would you have me start to do that you feel like he could benefit from okay and this is a great question and honestly me being kind of jumpers is what I love under jumpers is my realm my world what I like so so I get all excited about this part (laughs) (laughs) but one of the things that to, to keep in mind what makes a good jumper is they're they're kind of afraid of the jump you know, mm-hmm. if they weren't, they would just clunk on through it and never right. lift their legs. So, so we have this balance of the worry about the jump and us knowing that we have chosen them for the scope that, and, the, and the talent and the physicalness that they have to be able to do it, but then trying to create confidence about it without losing that boldness. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a tricky one to, to get worked out. But right. one of the things I would do with him, and this is really where even judgment started was taking it back to little X's and, and, and like he could go over those with his eyes closed, you know, most, a a lot of horses can, but, but really deliberately what they're doing is building up a new and improved reinforcement history with jumping the jump. Mm -hmm. So now while he could jump the jump said, okay, no big deal about that. They turned it from not just jumping the jump, but loving to jump the jump. Wow. So now as you start putting positive reinforcement in it, because really remember everything they do, there's an emotional experience that comes with the learning process. And so when they start doing um, something that's based in positive reinforcement, it is, and this has been shown through now neuroscientists have shown us, it produces endorphins, dopamines, and food particularly um, helps produce oxytocin. So now we have bonding, we have safety, we have good feelings, we have happiness that are all going to be part of the learning when we're utilizing food in positive reinforcement training. Right. With traditional training, we're using pressure and release. Even at the mildest level, what we start doing with pressure and release, we start teaching them to be active and very good at escape and avoidance. So this is what we do. We say, we're going to teach you how to escape this pressure. And so with that, it, it tends to activate the fight or flight part of the brain. And in the fight or flight part of the brain, so it's those different areas light up with the different training modalities. And with the fight or flight part of the brain, 
in that part of the brain, so in the one part of the brain referred to the seeking system, the positive reinforcement, it tends to be in the endorphins and dopamines. And then we know food is related to oxytocin. And then with the other part of the brain, which tends to light up when we're using traditional training or pressure release training, um, chemicals are also produced there, but it's cortisol. Cortisol tends to be one of the big things that are produced from that part of the system. So now as we start working them and teaching through one way or another, we're creating behavior that has a reinforcement history in cortisol mm. or one that's endorphins and dopamine. So while they learn how to do it and how to avoid it, and we spark that for just a minute and, and keeping in mind that with the jumping, they're like, oh, phew, I did it. Yeah. You know what I mean, that's kind yeah. of mentality versus the, oh, I love this. So we want to turn it into the, I am good at this and mm -hmm. I love this and have it be endorphins and dopamines coming forward when they do it. When we get it stronger, then what I would start doing is, and now we, we've taken it just for maybe a neutral, like whatever, I can jump it to, I want to jump it, mm -hmm. which is a big thing because I worked a lot of stoppers too. And turning that around, I would do it without a rider at first. I'd say, you just jump it. You're going to find the distance. You're going to work the whole thing out. I'm just going to be here on the other side and then build it up and then incorporate the rider back in. Mm -hmm. But this is very specific, which is great because it sounds like he trusts you, but his, mm -hmm. his word about the thing overrides his comfort mm -hmm. with the thing. <laughs> so definitely. So I mean, I then start with little boxes. And like, as you said, that approximation, you can get there. That's not very practical. It shows, unfortunately. Yeah. You can get them then where he, okay. So you go, okay, we're getting it. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. Okay. Now I'm not going to necessarily reinforce you for the little X. I'm just going to maybe pat you and say, good boy. But now we're going to put a little filler of some sort in. When he jumps the filler, I would make that more reinforcing. So now I would start shifting my reinforcement schedule to saying, but I want it small enough filler that I feel like he could cope with without, you know, feeling like, oh, this is too much. And now I'm, I have this stress on because I want to do it, but you know, we don't want that. But I would go to a filler that I think is small enough for him successfully to do out of the shoot perhaps and reinforce that a lot and then leave it there. Then the next day, I would maybe go on to, you know, a little, maybe a small, you know, flower box or whatever, but build up. Mm -hmm. So you start saying the elements in the unknown are actually going to be more reinforcing than the familiar feeling things. And I would also recommend in there doing, then this is something that is really typical with horses. They tend to be what's been, what's referred to as um, neophobic. So they see new sights, new sounds, new situations as potential for danger. Right now, when they don't know, they think, oh, no, as opposed to thinking, I don't know, what is that? You know, so they don't look at it and think curiosity is now just lit me up. They tend to think stranger danger first, mm -hmm. and then get past that. When we start using positive reinforcement, we start shifting them out of that. We very deliberately and systematically can start shifting them out of everything is a potential for danger to everything new, unknown, unfamiliar is a potential for reinforcement. Mm -hmm. So I would start walking them over, you know, over things, bridges, boxes, you know, whatever it could be and reinforcing every time he goes over the boxes or sniffs the box or sees the thing, because I have found that it is a concept when they get the idea that things I don't know are the potential for reinforcement, it tends to light them up for wanting to explore new things right. so instead of backing off and having fear because the fear is genuine, the fear is real. And when it comes up, they think. I may die. You know what I mean? Like they're not, they're not trying to be jerks. They really, right. I must, 
I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, you know, so 99.9% of aggression even comes from fear, but it was fear first. That's gone a little proactive. So when, so instead of him walking around thinking, Oh golly, it's just going to be treacherous and awful. You start saying, actually new things are potential for good. And you're going to find, and it takes a little repetition with it. And I would do it in different situations, different places, and not just with the jumping, get it as a general concept. You just do on walks and stuff. You're going to find that there's much more curiosity and boldness towards new sights, sounds, and situations, and a greater ability to focus. Because when they're going around looking for fear in the world, they have a tendency to be on the scouting, you know, the horizon for trouble that's coming, as opposed to when they're more relaxed and comfortable and confident, they can because they can kind of be more focused on the task at hand, as opposed to, you know, scanning for trouble. So when you get the focus in, it also helps to create a lot more uh, confidence and, and boldness in working through challenges. You'll totally, Bethany, can get this worked out. <laughs> totally can. It's not going to be a hard thing to do. It's just going to be a little repetition. Right. It starts with the foundation of get the bridge conditioning and target training, get those pieces worked out and then move on to some of the despooking and strange objects. But I would mean to while be working on the jumping in there too, even just going little X's. I'd reinforce mm -hmm. a lot for that. When BZ was incorporating um, the positive reinforcement and she was under saddle, would uh -huh. she hold the clicker or would someone yeah. else on the backside? Nope. He would, she would hold the clicker actually. And we came up with something. She, she started duct taping the clicker to her skin. <laughs> and I was like, no, we're not duct taping it. World champion, you know, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> so um, I, you know, then started and I sell them, but, but I took a clicker and drilled two holes in it in the backside. So it wouldn't interfere with the mechanical movement of clicking and then, then zip tied it or cable tied, you'd cable ties to uh, fasten it to a stick. So we still have those and sell those because it is, and you can make those, you know, it's not a super hard thing to do, but it makes it easier to have the clicker there. And those are best. When I started riding, I was taught to ride with a stick, you know, because I started riding as a Marine Mammal trainer thinking, I just need to learn how it's done. Mm -hmm. I'm not able to change anything before I know what works and maybe what parts could be better, you know? So I would ride all the time with the stick and I knew how to do that. That was very comfortable and easy for me because that's what I was taught to do. So for me, having the clicker on the end of the stick is easier for me to not unintentionally push it. You know what I mean? Because I can just move my thumb over and click that clicker and right. then get my thumb back. So if it's in my hand, I find it, whether I'm holding the reins of doing, I unintentionally will click it a lot more. But if it's in my hands in the form of some sort of stick, um, I can then get over there and put my thumb, depress the clicker and get back to taking it back off of there and not have those accidental clicks, if that makes sense. I assume there's also a specific timing to the clicking. Um, whether, I, I don't know, for some reason in my head, I'm like, wait, does it make sense to click before the situation occurs so that they know something good is going to come of it or is it after they've already done it? Yeah. And now that's a really good question as yes, what you said is correct, but really the timing is not unlike any other timing. BZ had amazing timing with it. And, and she told me I had amazing timing as a rider, but it's all because it's the same clicking, whether it's positive mm -hmm. or the same timing, whether it's positive or negative, you're either letting go or you're depressing a click. So you think about it. You want to click on the action you want to see more of. 
So typically with the riding, like with jumping, I'm going to click at the commitment or the apex typically of the jump, you know, so we're still on our way up. If I started like with the dolphins, if I started clicking every time or we used whistles, but I started blowing the whistle every time we went back into the water, they would think back to the water faster. So mm-hmm. get flatter and flatter and flatter bows or jumps. So, so the same would hold true with the, with the horses, always clicking the action you want to see more of. So with jumping, I'd say it's the commitment to the jump. You know, it's when he says, I'm going, when you're like working on like, okay, but we land and we land and run. So now you're kind of, maybe you're working on a different piece. So my, what I might then do is be working on, okay, jumping isn't really the issue. It's what we do after it. So I'm shift my timing, my focus to that behavior, but that would be a different, you know, that'd be a different behavior altogether, really. You know? Right. Right. Interesting. What would you say is an area of the industry that you're especially passionate about that you feel like the rest of the horse world either doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about? Yeah, I think obviously the positive reinforcement and understanding and getting that right. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some people that are like, no, no, I'll never do that. And I was like, then you don't understand because it's science. But but that that's a gimme at this point. You know, we know we're out there. Yeah. It's it's getting, it's growing. It's chilly. So that's that's not what you need to do. I think the other part that is really big for me that I wish more people were taking action on. And there's certain people that are, and there's certain areas that are, that are, but it is our social license to practice. I mean, it is, or to operate, you know, I think that we, it is very much taken for granted that there's so many people I feel like that in the horse world that think it's impervious to what the marine mammal world went through. And I'm here to say it is absolutely not. It is on the chopping block with the animal rights activists. And I think we need to be policing ourselves from the inside. And maybe policing sounds a little bit hard, but being diligent to to prioritize the horse's welfare, the horse's well-being above our own goals. You know what I mean? We can with positive reinforcement, we can be sure that horses we can do this where they love mm-hmm. shows. They get to the shows and they're like, I love all this crazy stuff, as opposed to being overwhelmed at it, that they can learn to do their job in a, in a systematic way. So we can, we can keep those things alive and well, but I think it's going to take a little bit of awareness because did you know that right now there's somebody from the, that, that is part of the Olympic team in uh, the UK they see a day where show jumping will not be at the Olympics. They're really? 100% anticipating it. So I'm saying, let's not let it get there. Let's be a little proactive. Every time we have the racehorses breaking the legs, every time we have the horse being hit with the, the log, or, you know, whatever the people do that, that we say, but that's an exception. That's not the rule. Mm-hmm. But, but this is not what animal activists do. They don't go out. They go out to people who don't know horses they don't go to the horse industry. They go to people who don't know horses or mammals and say, this is what they all do. And so it becomes kind of looked at like, this is how it all goes. And there's bad seeds in every discipline, you know, in every right. walk of life out there. It, but it is. And so I really, really would hope that we can get people to be having these hard conversations to really consider what we're doing to give options for no bits if people want to do that, you know, to to have a little more proactive mm-hmm. animal awareness going on because what we've done forever feels impervious because it's been forever. But um, I'm really hoping that because if we lose the showing portion, we're it's all going to go downhill. 
you know, then we're not going to have people to make the blankets or the food or the boots or the, you know, because the whole industry won't be supported enough financially. So every, it'll all fall apart. So Mm -hmm. I really hope that we can learn how to do it in a way that horses love it and enjoy it. And that's what Jesse and I are out to really work on. We have two little show hunters, you know, Je- Henley just turned four, but you know, want to show that she can go and love it. She can clean up and love it all the while. So we want to really, and Santino the same, really helping them get out there and be active advocates to show people that we can do it. But I just want us to be doing this sooner than later because later may be too late if we're not right. careful. Right. Wow. What a great point. And I think that that's very valid and something that we definitely need to have more conversations about. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, I'm so excited that we got the chance to talk today because I feel like it's something um, that every program, every horse owner at some point in their equestrian life could could utilize positive reinforcement. And there, there's so many instances, small or large, where where that could be really helpful. So I appreciate you taking the time to kind of walk me through a little bit about what goes into positive reinforcement. And it's exciting. I'm, I'm definitely going to try some of these things um, on, on one of my horses and see see what he thinks. And, you know, and we're always, you know, there, there, there's a podcast that is Equine Clicker 101 that has resources. It's a, the little lens and positive reinforcement mm. that they help you along the way. But I'm always here to help, too, because I Amazing. love I love the success. And I can't wait till you tell me the day, you know, those yeah. jumps around without any problem. <laughs> uh, yes, oh, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Shauna, for coming on. And I wish you all the best. Thank you, Bethany. You, too. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.